0: Welcome back to Means of Creation, our weekly show where we are deep diving into the passion economy and the future of work. I'm your host, Lee Jin, along with Nathan Bechez, and I hope everyone had a really great Thanksgiving last week and rested up because today we are going to have an absolute banger of a conversation with our very special guest, my friend, Eugene Wei. Eugene is a former product executive who is undisputably one of the best technology writers online today. For about 20 years, Eugene has been publishing his blog called Remains of the Day, where he talks about the intersection of technology and media, and his writing dissects complicated consumer tech trends, not just from a product design perspective, but also from a user psychology perspective. His essays, including status as a service and seeing like an algorithm, really serve as guiding mental models for the broader tech community as a whole. And today, Eugene is an angel investor and advisor to various startups. And previously, he was the head of video Oculus and also led product teams at Flipboard, Hulu and Amazon. And in between all of those things, he also had a brief stint in film school at UCLA which I want to talk about as well. But without further ado, Eugene, thanks so much for being on the show today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you here. So I want to kick off the conversation by starting with this piece that you wrote, I think about maybe more than a year ago, early 2019, you came out with this amazing piece that I think was the first time that I I realized like who you were and was like, Wow, I need to talk to Eugene. And that was your piece about status as a service. And obviously a lot has happened since then. The creator ecosystem has entered prominence and everyone is really interested in creators that I was wondering if you could just summarize for those of us in the audience who haven't perhaps read it, summarize the core ideas of status as a service.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Sure. I started with sort of like two basic principles, which I think have like long been understood about humans. One is that we are status seeking by nature, like we are social creatures. And it's really important to us for, you know, whatever reasons, evolutionary psychology or other reasons to gain status within like our tribe. And the second point was just that, that humans tend to try to seek out the most efficient way to gain status for them. And then I applied that to broader social networks that were in technology to try to explain some of the phenomenon we see with social networks and try to expand on our understanding of a particular type of network effect. Because I think up until that point, network effects are like the the most popular sort of phenomenon that we talk about in technology. And obviously social networks are the easiest place to apply the idea of network effects, but... I felt like we had a more limited understanding of network effects and how they worked we had a very crude model, which was really based on like Metcalfe's law, this idea that the value of a network sort of increases roughly in proportion to the square of the number of users in that network. And that's like broadly true, but when you apply it to specific use cases, it actually really matters uh, what the type of network effect is and how it operates so that you understand when it stops working and and why. That's like the basic framework of status as a service. Um, And then as a metaphor to explain it, I tried to analogize it to ICOs in crypto because I thought that it was really interesting that every new social network that starts reminded me of an ICO where there's like these status tokens that they're offering to you. And there's some sort of proof of work that you have to go through to try to earn those tokens. And one reason I use that metaphor was that over time, more of the status tokens tend to be mined away and it gets harder and harder to gain that. So I thought it was a useful way to explain why we were starting to see diseconomies of scale or negative network effects creeping in on some networks, because If you believe in Metcalfe's law, you would say that the first social network to get big should just run away and become dominant forever. And we've certainly seen that's not the case. Yeah, that was, I think the basic idea of the piece was I've long, it's not like I've worked on a lot of social networks, but I find them a very fascinating sort of business model, incredibly leveraged, some of the fastest growing companies in the history of the world, but yet also mysterious in some ways. The networks get big and then suddenly they're not cool anymore and people leave and go to another network like why does all that happen so
0: mm-hmm. that
1: that was an early attempt of mine to try to
0: make sense of it all yeah i think that notion of over time it becomes harder to mine new tokens and there's mm-hmm. this built-in scarcity of status is really interesting mm-hmm. i remember early on when i first entered VC, it was 2016. Mm-hmm. And at that time, the prevailing notion among investors was maybe consumer social had just been played out. Like it was yeah. over. There would be no mm-hmm. more consumer social networks because mm-hmm. all of the ones that we had seen had reached worldwide scale and yeah. basically gotten everyone with a computer or a smartphone signed up. And right. per the prevailing notion of network effects, like those kinds of, that scaled network effect meant that it would be really hard for a newcomer to ever be able to offer as much utility to users signing up for a new service. Mm -hmm. And obviously that hasn't happened. That hasn't been true. Like social networking, obviously there's been new networks that have been started since Facebook and since Instagram that have really come up and grown really rapidly. Mm -hmm. And I think status as a service is a really good explanation as to why. I'm curious if you think about that notion of scarcity of status for any network, does it imply that there will forever be new startups that can disrupt the ones before, and there's basically Mm -hmm. a longevity, a built-in timeline to the duration of any social network?
1: That is one possible outcome that, and I especially think it's interesting when you think about generational turnover, because one thing We know traditionally is, and any parent can (laughs) explain this in in even more detail, every generation of kids are, you know, creating a new sort of like status dynamic for their generation that is, is different than the one that their parents had. And that was certainly a beneficial, I think, dynamic for Snapchat or something like that. We know that it was problematic for Facebook when a lot of parents started joining, and mm-hmm. were suddenly looking. Your parents are looking at what you're posting in your newsfeed. Was such a had such a strong observational effect <laughs> on what happened there. And so those types of dynam- dynamics are in play when it comes to building a social network and how you structure it. Like what's the topology of your network, and what groups are interacting. I think. A lot of it happened by accident. I think this first generation of social networks were just trying to grow and they were growth hacking and they were using machine learning and they were just dealing with things as they went along and maybe not thinking about it from a sociological perspective. So some of that all happening was just an accident, but I'm really interested in that intersection of social networks affecting real world status dynamics and real world networks if you think about it and this is really true for me now most of my interactions with most of the people in my life actually take place through social media now like if you just did a sheer count and i encourage you to do that do a rough estimate in your life about that that's such a difference from when i was a kid when most of my interactions with people were in person and not mediated through these networks which are designed, like not designed necessarily with that in mind. And that's really affecting a lot of things in society and in everything, right? Like it's increasingly the case that social networks are how citizens of a country understand each other and talk to each other and how we debate different ideas. And in some ways, I don't think we were ready for that to happen. The counter to the idea that we'll always have new social networks might be this idea that... If you look at something like WeChat, I think that's a network that kind of moved much harder towards becoming a just general kind of like utility Mm -hmm. for society and is a little bit harder to to displace. But even in the case of WeChat, you still see that there are alternative networks in China that can serve different functions. So I always think there will be some level of diversity of networks because it's just very hard for one network to do all those different things well, or to yeah. serve all those different cases.
2: It's almost like WeChat has managed to stake out a ground at almost like a higher level of abstraction where cause there's networks within networks. There's like a group within Facebook, within the yeah. web and mobile mm-hmm. ecosystems within just like internet and phone, like actual physical connections yeah. where TCP IP is, but one of maybe the protocols that data is being transferred on those pipes yeah. from, and uh, it's interesting, like Probably the more abstract you are, the more you closer you get to the metal, the harder it is to get it off the ground. The more sticky it is when it's there, especially as you get more people building smaller versions of networks. And even this conversation is its own network of sort, or like the this show right. where it's you mm-hmm. don't really think of it as a network, but there's chat, people are talking to each other. Yeah. yeah, there's there's also like
1: the effect of when disruption theory became really popular in tech. You started to see companies actively trying to stave off disruption. So there's some extent to it. as we start to understand social networks better, they themselves will try to evolve to stave off extinction or disruption from other networks. I still tend to think that humans are more complicated than networks can sort of like evolve <laughs> to accommodate. So even for WeChat, if you look at WeChat now, they're now shipping a bunch of updates that feel very much, oh, putting story-like sticky stuff at the top of the feed and things like that are reactions to other networks that are gaining on them in different domains. There is a weird thing in tech where because all tech companies have the same sort of rough set of skills in terms of just employees, like you just all have a bunch of software developers and you're all building software, there's always that possibility that one of your competitors will just get into your space or that you'll want to go in invade and and that's just like a very different dynamic from the more like atoms-based world where if you were ford you weren't worried that dupont would start making cars necessarily but if you see in tech there's like this history of wow google's in search but then one day amazon built a search engine or one company is in digital music and then all of a sudden all of them are in digital music so that's competitive dynamic and threat will always just hang over uh, the entire industry, which makes it fun.
0: The other topic that I definitely want to get your thoughts on is around the intersection of the ideas of the passion economy with status as a service. A few months after you wrote status as a service last year, I published a piece called the passion economy and the future of work, Mm -hmm. which talks about how new platforms are giving people the ability to monetize individuality and create a wide range of various creative products and services. And I think that the two ideas are actually quite complementary in the sense that I think for much of human history, you could use capital, like economic capital to purchase status and vice versa. If you were a high status person, you could probably convert that into capital. And I think the new battleground for social networks, and creator platforms is no longer just offering the most fruitful grounds for one to accrue status and followers, but also to be able to monetize that, to convert that status into a source of income. Like That Mm -hmm. seems like an additional source of defensibility now that hadn't really been in in play before. But I'm really interested to get your thoughts on that and where you see the intersections of those two ideas.
1: Yeah, I think one of the challenges with social capital theory in general traditionally has been that it's a little harder to measure in discrete terms than financial capital. So we have just like really, you know, elaborate theories on, I don't know, options, pricing and all these things in the financial world because we have a way to put numbers to them. And social capital traditionally has been a little harder to quantify I'm a firm believer that just because you can't measure something discreetly doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And the way that you can measure the value of social capital is often when it gets converted into financial capital, right? Like an influencer who has X number of followers on Instagram will get an offer from a brand to do a post at some price that establishes some market price for that number of followers for that person. And so you can start to see the edges of social capital, right? You can start to put math to it. And we're just getting better and better at doing that because you have more and more influencers or different people who are achieving fame in the social media age who are trying to make themselves into durable brands or businesses in one way or another. And you have people doing it in all different uh, ways, right? People are putting out branded merchandise. People are selling subscriptions. You go down the line And that all I think is helpful in making social capital feel more real. And one of the interesting things that we're seeing right now is that for a long time, everyone's been trying to use the big social networks that exist now to build their followings, like whether it's YouTube or Instagram or whatever, you can um, name all of them. But they're somewhat limited by the monetization like options that are available through those. And those have been really not yet, they haven't really matured or the platforms themselves have some dynamics whereby maybe they want to limit the degree to which creators can monetize because there's rev share agreements or some other dynamic in play. So you're starting to see that dynamic where you build a following on one platform and then you like go off platform to try to maximize the value of that social capital. I think there's some loss, there's some dead loss right now that um, definitely occurs where if you're super famous on TikTok or Instagram or something, you're like unable (laughs) to capitalize fully on how much that's worth. And so you end up going um, to build your own infrastructure or something to try to like narrow that gap. So that's an interesting dynamic that we'll continue to see. And you'll continue to have that dynamic where any platform that makes someone famous you know, those people at the top are always the ones most uh, at risk of leaving mm-hmm. the network yeah. because they have the strongest following. That's always going to be a, f- a case where then the network has to decide, do I strike a special deal to keep them around? Or is it just I let them leave and then I build up someone else to become famous again. So right. you have like people on Twitch, mm-hmm. like Ninja who got paid a lot of money to go to Mixer and you could argue, hey, that was a good deal for him to To capture some of that value, like right then and there in hard cash. But Twitch survives fine. It turns out that if you go to the homepage of Twitch, you find other people that to follow and their ability to crown new people was a strength of their network. So this is always just a trade off of distribution power. It's the same thing with people fighting with Apple now over Apple store distribution, right? How much are they? how much incremental distribution are they giving you? And is it worth 30%? Right. Um, at, Which at is maybe the why they time. hired Josh Elman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> good for Josh and good for Apple. Yeah. At, at one point, for sure, like the app store was worth 30%, maybe worth more to many people. But now I, I can definitely see the case where some companies are like, no, it's not worth it because they're not actually driving that much more incremental distribution. And it'll be the same for... Charlie D'Amelio or Ninja or all these people. They're always roughly in the back of their head doing that math. Does this platform drive enough incremental distribution to justify the cost? And if not, at some point you'll jump and you'll probably end up with more sort of lightweight infrastructure platforms out there, which are like, look, we actually don't even drive any distribution for you. We're just a layer for you to collect payments or whatnot, but we charge a lot less. And if you're famous, at some point you will you'll make the jump.
0: Yeah. Totally. When do you think that strategy of paying very influential creators works versus doesn't work? Because obviously Ninja, I, I wouldn't point to that as a success mm-hmm. because obviously mixer shut down. Triller now is attempting to do it with top TikTok stars and paying them lots mm-hmm. of guaranteed like income plus providing them with cars, sushi dinners, things like that. Facebook with reels as well. Substack. Substack doing that for journalists with advances. I'm curious on your thoughts around that strategy of trying to like jumpstart a network by just paying top creators and the viability of that.
1: Yeah. I don't think there's a universal rule on this front. I don't think it's, it's not like a terrible idea sometimes to think about paying creators, but it really depends on your product, right, and and like the dynamics of your product yourself, because it really you could just treat it as uh, paid, you know, advertising, right? Mm-hmm. If you're paying influencers, you're really just trying to bring a bunch of eyeballs to a service at one time, and you could do that any number of ways. You could pay to have influencers bring their existing followings. You could go do ads on TV, whatnot. Is your product ready to retain those types of users? And that kind of differs by platform I think a case of substack for example i i think that is different from something like a thriller yeah. and is different from something like a mixer or something like that because each of those platforms has a different dynamic in terms of how they cross merchandise their fans how do they have a feed uh, or not substack is still a series of mostly individual newsletters there's less of a there's not like a Substack feed right now, or something like a news feed or something like that, where it's a trailer is different, right? They're trying to do a TikTok model where they have a feed and things like that. So I don't think there's like a hard and fast rule. If you pay a bunch of influencers to bring their people to your crowd and your product's not ready for it and it's not going to retain those people, then you're just lighting money on fire.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Blake Robbins had a really interesting tweet, I think, yesterday where he <laughs> talked about the opportunity to build a YC for creators meaning mm-hmm. i'm interpreting that as like training the next generation of creators to become successful mm-hmm. and today like on most of the social platforms they got there on their own they learn how to do all the tiktok dances on their own they learn wow. how to create youtube videos on their own there's no real systematized education for creators yeah do you think something like that could work or yeah i'm curious on like Basically, the the concept of training people to play these status games.
1: Mm. Yes and no. I guess I'll be a boring guest in that I always like to split a <laughs> lot of these things. I think there's just like nuance to all of these things. So, yes, from the perspective of generally, I think in many domains, it's true that the friction to getting into that space and becoming good at it is still relatively too high. Like just to be an entrepreneur like just to do a startup, if I were to take 10 people and say, okay, like we want to make these people into entrepreneurs, I do think you could do a ton to make that easier for them. Like just having a thing like Stripe Atlas is like yeah. already just like such improvement in of the friction of starting a company. If you look at like the general American Idol like model, which is, hey, mm-hmm. were there people like Kelly Clarkson just out in the population that would have never gotten famous unless we pluck them out of a crowd? And 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 you could argue, yeah, like I actually do think that happens in a lot of fields. So I think you could take a bunch of people and make them influential. On the other hand, there still are differences, right? Between people, like some people do have certain talents that are better suited to certain things. I don't think Charlie D'Amelio would have hit a hundred million followers on TikTok just only if TikTok had pushed her a lot. I do think there was something, there are some things about her that make her uniquely able to capture that. So there is an interaction effect, right? If you look at a ninja, or if you look at Toast streaming Among Us, I do think like he's a better streamer of Among Us than other people. It's not just a random happenstance thing (laughs) that made him big. On the other hand, in the modern age, I do think it's also true that there are runaway winner effects because of the way that algorithmic amplification works so that the winners now tend to just be they win by a bigger margin than previous people and that may not be fully reflective of their talent or skill difference versus the next person but there is a there is a first mover effect that's very real in a global economy and one one thing which i don't know if we were going to talk about this or not but One of the opinions I have, which I think goes counter to what I had believed or been taught earlier in my career was when I was at Amazon, they always said, you should just focus on the customer. Don't focus on the competition. And I hear that a lot from everybody. They're always like, focus on the customer. Don't worry about what your competition is doing. But I actually think that I don't believe that anymore. And part of the reason I don't believe that is that in this sort of global networked internet age economy there is a very strong winner take all effect in a lot of markets, where if you get early momentum, you just get so much of an advantage in terms of capital, customers, media, everything that you'll run away. And so if you look at you versus your competition, you could just model it at a very basic level as you're in an adapt a complex adaptive system, and it's evolutionary, and you are trying out different business models and products in the marketplace. Those are your, sort of your evolutionary adaptations, like one is trying to grow wings, the other is growing like uh, big legs so they can run fast, like whatever uh, metaphor you want to use from evolutionary theory. And you can model that at the market level as just random. Mm -hmm. Now, if you believe that you are actually just smarter, like (laughs) your path of choosing the right model is better, then yes, you should just focus on the customer and be the first to come up with the best business model. But if you believe inherently that process is somewhat random, that like this idea of the idea maze, like you're just like two different people in the idea maze running around at different places. If you start to see your competitor actually stumble on something that works better than you, then they're actually just going to run away from you and just crush you. And so that's why I advise a lot of startups that I advise now that, yes, pay attention to the customer, focus mostly on that, but yeah, you should keep one eye open on your competition. Because if they hit on something, you better go chase them down and follow them quickly. And in a way, I think that's like, what Facebook did really well with they get beat up a lot at Instagram for copying stories from Snapchat. But I don't know, if you can swallow the embarrassment of people always like saying that you copied, it's actually rational strategy for them. And it might be actually if you merge disruption theory and this theory around winner take all markets, it might be that they're better off just continually doing that. Once you get large, just keep looking at anything that yeah. gets traction and just copying it. Because you'll probably, the market is probably going to be uh, more innovative than you will be, but you have the advantage of scale.
2: And you might fail in in some cases, like Amazon's iPhone competitor obviously did not work, but was it worth it for them to try? hundred percent. Like the cost is pretty low. No one even talks about the Fire Phone anymore. And the tablet is still a thing. Yeah. In the, about the three body trilogy analogy,
1: where I was talking earlier about how all like tech companies are capable of invading each other's markets. That's not like totally true. Like I do think there's more than just having software developers, but it's also true that there is like this mutually assured destruction threat (laughs) that always looms out there where you're like, I should just try to build a phone just in case Apple (laughs) decides to be like really ruthless with the iPhone and kick us off. But that would be just brutal for us to miss out on the mobile platform. And that threat will always make it so that companies will do weird projects, like try to build their own phone. They just wanna have a credible alternative in case that happens. Now, you would hope that antitrust law and different things ensure that doesn't happen, but right. I don't think people can really fully appreciate how much when people internalize disruption theory, how paranoid people at different big tech giants are about what their com- competitors will do. Like when I was at Facebook, we weren't allowed to use Google Suite products because there's so oh, maybe they'll be like reading our email and, and things like that. It's like a very high stakes competition and, and that's actually rational in the age of the internet, right? Because the stakes are so high. They're really like global markets.
0: Yeah. I know that in your discussion about winner take all effects and how success begets more success, you're probably talking about startups and businesses, but I feel Mm -hmm. like that also holds true for fame and talent and creators Mm -hmm. where there are like right now at to some extent, Charlie's growth to hundred million is probably propelled by the fact that she has a lot of followers already who are telling their friends about her and she's famous and that propels more fame and that draws like better opportunities for her or better content editors, or she just yeah. sees things first and can, and produce the best content. And I feel like that effect exists on a number of different content creation platforms where there's almost like a moat that you get from being the first, to fame, or like the most famous person, like Kim Kardashian, like that notion of being famous for for being famous.
1: I, I, I don't know if you know about the Santa Fe Institute, but they did a lot of early work on complexity theory, and complexity science. And I think there was like this winter for that type of theory, where it was just like, Oh, how do we apply this to the economy and the business world? It's not clear. But I think in the internet age, we are starting to see Um, that stuff come back into vogue and have more explanatory power. And that we are starting to move beyond like, just old supply and demand curves and scarcity based economic theory. And so if you look at Charlie on TikTok, and I don't know if you remember when she first started to gain a lot of followers, like, She was like, even, I don't understand what's happening. Like, why am I getting so popular? And her bio
2: was, I don't get it either. That was like literally her bio on TikTok. I don't get it either.
1: There were all these like conspiracy theories. People are like, they're manually boosting her. It's like fake. But if you just actually look at how the TikTok algorithm works, I think there is like a rational way to explain it all that doesn't have to rely on conspiracy theory or anything. First of all, the algorithm is heavily exploit-based and heavily, you know, weighted towards amplifying someone who's getting a little bit of amplification. Second, because of the way the FYP feed works and because of the existence of the duet feature, what you had was like she started to get famous, there was a backlash against her. A lot of people were posting videos being like she's not worth the hype or whatever. And then you had the backlash to the backlash, which were like women came in and were like women standing up for women. There was that dynamic. And then you had the backlash to the backlash. And then you also have the grifters who are like, man, it's hard for me to get in the FYP feed, but what if I just duet one of Charlie's videos, I might be able to ride her coattails for more distribution, which kind of works sometimes as a strategy. And so when you have all that happen, all it takes is like a spark, right? Mm-hmm. Someone breaking out for that to just become a runaway like process and amplify itself. Now that's happened to other people since Charlie and they haven't become as famous as she has or gained as many followers. So I do think that's the part where her ability to appeal to a broad audience still matters. But yeah, you have that happening and that's an interaction with the algorithm itself. In a previous age, that just would have happened much more slowly (laughs) to the old media model where you get to that level of fame. If you look at the Kardashian-Jenner clan as the previous version of a Charlie, like they were like pre-TikTok, They also are an example of capitalizing on the modern social media ecosystem to achieve a larger scale of fame more quickly.
0: Yeah. I was wondering if you could expound on the idea of creativity network effects that you had been talking about, I think, Mm -hmm. on a different podcast that I listened to. Explain that to us because it's quite novel.
1: Yeah. So going at the beginning of our talk, I was talking about how it's important to understand the nature of network effects because they're very, there's so many different types of network effects and they all Mm -hmm. operate differently. Network effects of creativity is an idea that I've been thinking about in, with respect to TikTok, right? So TikTok does a number of things to accelerate that you can actually have network effects of creativity in the physical world. Like I used to be in a writing group in college and there's just sort of this idea that if you get together with other people, all the writers in the group benefit. And that was true. What TikTok does is they're like, okay, is there a way we can use software to actually increase network effects of creativity to actually encode those into our product? And they do it any number of ways. One is they went off and licensed a bunch of music. But also, anyone who creates a TikTok, you can use the soundtrack to their TikTok as the soundtrack to yours. And you can lip sync it or whatnot just by pressing a button. Like you don't actually have to go, like in the old days, I'd have to download it, split the audio in Premiere, and then lay my video over it and do it. And it is very complicated. Duetting is like one of the most underrated features out there. You can duet someone's. TikTok. And essentially, it just puts you side by side on the same video plane, which sounds like pretty trivial. But actually, if you were to try to do that in Premiere or something, it's actually a pain, right? Like I'd have to download the video, (laughs) put it in, I'd have to like block out the space, and they just make it a one touch process. And you can go down the list of their features, which actually just allow you to quickly borrow any component of someone else's video to do it. At a broad structural level, though, the, maybe the most important network effect of creativity that TikTok has is just giving you an idea of what to do. If I were to just yeah. say, hey, Lee or Nathan, go make a TikTok like with no prompt, you'd have to sit around and think of an idea. Like, it's actually like, really hard to come up with an original, funny, entertaining idea. Most of the TikToks that are made are actually not original they're just riffs off of someone else's idea. And that's great. You can go on TikTok, look at the discover page, see what hashtags are trending, or you can just go through the FYP and if you find one that's funny, you can instantly like with two presses, start making your version of that one. And any creative person, any writer, right? Nathan, you have the Substack so you can appreciate this like the blinking cursor is like the curse <laughs> for any writer. You're like, "Oh my god, I have to produce something." every week from scratch, it's not easy. And so I think that's like the most interesting thing about TikTok is that it it makes legible a whole range of memes that are happening yeah. at any time. And that means that you can just start not from scratch. <laughs> you don't totally. have to start with a blank page.
2: That's, I think that's so critical is like, there's basically, I think the format of pretty much any meme is there's like a blank space where you can do your twist on it. And it's actually similar to, we talk about like things going viral or whatever. I mean, the yeah. reason why coronavirus has this shape that's got little things sticking out of it that make it look like a crown. The point is those things attach very easily. To, sorry, I my microphone. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Those things attach very easily to other molecules. And that's why it's so viral is because there's a blank space where like things can go. And yep. I think there's something deep about that structure of Mad Libs almost, where it's, yep. I'm going to reuse the sound, but I'm going to put my own twist on it. Or, oh, like I saw Bill Bishop created cynicism. I bet I mm-hmm. could analyze South Africa because I knew a ton about South Africa or whatever. And so there's always, oh, I saw someone doing it. I can do that thing too, but I'm going to do it a little bit differently. And just the friction removal from um, right. TikTok is taken to the extreme where it's like, if you're, if I was still working on a product at Substack, it would be interesting to think about what is Substack's version of taking something and riffing on it? Because yeah. it is, writing is very. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have to some extent, you have that happen in the writing
1: world where like people in tech are always like writing about right. mimetic violence from Rene Girard or whatever. There are certain <laughs> themes that everybody sort of like just goes off of, or people talk about disruption theory or even TikTok itself, right? Now everybody's writing about TikTok because it was like the app of. The day and people are trying to become like tiktok experts and so you'll always have some level by which network effects of creativity or that kind of like mimetic that like mass copying happens or that riffing happens it's just interesting i think tiktok is just interesting because they actually encode it at the software level yeah and you can see right like one of the reasons that Santa Fe complexity theory, that science, I think is starting to have more relevance in the modern world is that the internet essentially actually makes the world a densely connected network. And TikTok is just one community which is hyper-connected. And complexity theory is all about these like mesh networks and these complex adaptive systems. And the world has essentially become one in the information sphere. And that's why I think more and more you'll start to see that stuff have more explanatory power about Mm. what is happening on the internet. And so I think I'm excited about that piece of it influencing, I think like business strategy. Like I think I I was reading this book, it's called Lords of Strategy. I, I forget. It was about like, the people who came up with business strategy, 60s. It's like- uh,
2: Experience curve and shit like that.
1: It was like Michael Porter at HBS. And then it was the three founders of McKinsey, Bain, and BCG consulting firms. And even when I graduated undergrad, and even today, a lot of business strategy is built around the theories that they came up with, the BCG two by two, Porter's five forces or six forces now. It's the sixth. And yeah, there's a sixth force now. I forget what it is. Did Porter
2: like. officially add it? Porter is
0: the Corgi.
1: Yeah. Well, my, I name my Corgi after. <laughs> oh my gosh.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's unfortunate. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Porter added a sixth force, which I only, I learned recently when I was talking to the team at STIR, because they just hired someone from HBS who had just taken Porter's class. And he's like, yep, mm. there's a sixth force now. But, What's funny is that I do think a lot of business strategy was like devised in an age where there was just more scarcity. And so yeah, if you're like the brand manager of Tide detergent at P&G, like your BCG frameworks might help you if you're trying to gain like 3 points of market share on Clorox or something, but if you're a, a entrepreneur trying to do a startup or if you're competing in the internet space, I'm just not sure some of those theories actually work given the dynamics of the internet and abundance and the, the infinite replicability of information at zero marginal cost, like at the edges of the supply and demand curves that like a lot of our theories actually go wonky, like they're like super bizarre effects at the edges. And I think it's interesting to think about what is the new Bible of business strategy for this era and some of it i think will come from like complexity science and complexity theory and some of it will come from other things we'll just have a better understanding
2: have you read the origin of wealth i have yeah yeah go ahead
1: yeah very much like uh, a a a really good read in terms of this like a first glance at this and there are a bunch of other there are a bunch of other good really thinkers i think on this topic but none of them have become like the new michael porter just right. yet but yeah, I'm, I'm I think a lot of people that. are working on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It can be I'm you. a long way off. I'm so, decades. Someone off, will name but. their someone will name their dog Beshez someday.
0: <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. So, with our remaining time, I, I want to turn it over to audience questions. There's a lot of people here who are your fans, Eugene, and have a lot of things to ask you. So, if you have a question, type it into the Q and A, and we will pick and choose. From that, but maybe we can start with some of the ones that people have already left in here.
1: Okay. Where do you want to go? Let's see.
0: There was a question that I got last night. I crowdsourced it from a community, but people were interested to hear you speak about the cultural differences or similarities between the East and West and whether you think there's models in China that are empowering creators that you think can be translated to the US or serve as a new model for a platform in the US.
2: Maybe if culture could perhaps be abstracted somehow into software? (laughs) Yes and
1: no. I do think that, so like the last couple of years, pre-pandemic, I was going back to China maybe once a year to speak at companies or at conferences. And I'd usually spend a week or two traveling around Beijing or Shanghai just to meet up with different investors and different companies. And it's really, first of all, it's actually like very enlightening to study, because of the nature of the Chinese market being somewhat separated by the Great Firewall, and because it's such a different culture, essentially, we are like able to look at the effect of path dependence and cultural context on the tech space. Like They're evolving on their own timeline in their own directions. And as a self-described cultural determinist, I would say some of what they do, I think, does point the way to... What can happen in the U.S.? Like you can see it actually with TikTok, right? Like a lot of the things we're seeing on TikTok now already happened in China with Douyin. They were just a little bit further ahead. And there are two things that are important there. One is the leapfrog effect. The incumbent solutions in China in a lot of spaces are just very different than in the U.S. So they were able to leapfrog ahead of us on any number of dimensions, including digital payments. The other is just that the culture itself is quite different. And that means that some things there just have different fundamentals than they do in the U.S. For example, people always talk about the big red envelope promotion that drove uh, a lot of people adopting digital wallets in China. And people talk a lot about digital tipping in China for creators, right, on networks like Y. And to some extent, we're starting to see a little bit, like we see a little bit of digital tipping on Twitch and things like that. But I don't know that we'll necessarily... I think there's a very real reason why China was ahead of us on digital tipping for the creator economy. And that has to do with the nature of how we even think about it. Like in China, it's not thought of as... Tipping has a very specific connotation in America. Like when I say tipping in America, most people think of like tipping someone who provided like a service Mm -hmm. and it actually has some racist roots in history around like what tipping started off as it but that's like how people think about it and so when you think about should i tip this creator for a lot of an older generation i think it's just they're not providing a service directly for me it is it doesn't feel right but in china like they don't think of it as tipping like they don't really have a big tipping culture like at restaurants even a lot of restaurants in china you don't tip giving money in China is a way to actually increase your own status, Mm. right? Like you go to your manager's house, if they have you over for dinner, you would like actually bring a gift. That was like either money or like a bottle of expensive liquor at weddings. In Chinese weddings, a lot of people like the the best gift you can give is cash. Whereas in America, people would be like, why would you give cash at a wedding Mm. that like shows a lack of thought? And so I like, there are so many cultural differences like that I think affect adoption of certain trends that I think it's hard to project out. And in another, like to use just one more example, if you think about food delivery as a market, and then you go to China and look at the food delivery infrastructure, or if you look at, actually a better example would be live streaming commerce, since a lot of people are thinking about that and talking about that. Live streaming commerce is much bigger in China than it is in the U.S., And I do think live streaming commerce can be a thing in America. But one thing to remember about China is just, first of all, there are like two digital wallets, like almost everybody has in China. They're like embedded in your phone. So uh, no matter what app I'm watching live streaming commerce in, in China, if I see something I want, I tap the button. I choose the size or color if that's an option. I hit buy almost always. I'm not paying for shipping and I'll get that in one to three days. Essentially, China has like Amazon Prime, one-click shopping for the entire market. Yeah. Now compare that to if I see something I want to buy on Instagram and I decide to buy it, what steps do I have to go through to make that happen? Do I have to pay for shipping? I like all those things are different. And those things have huge effects on like actual adoption rates and total market size. I, I think it's important when you analyze East versus West dynamics to be aware of those cultural dynamics, and and not just assume that everything that's big in China now will be big in the US. I actually think Apple Pay, for example, I actually like Apple Pay better than using the QR code WeChat Pay system in China in a lot of ways, like it can be faster. But in America, we're just so uh, addicted to our credit card miles and points. And just, we don't really feel like it's just like habit for us to whip out our credit card and right and pay with that. We don't see the same level of adoption. Yeah. And that's, again, that's the leapfrog problem. Do you think,
0: I think that- one of, oh, Go ahead, Lee. I was just going to say, I, I think those cultural differences and nuances are so important to explore because I agree that not everything translates. I think part of what is driving live streaming donations or tipping in China is- I don't know if I'm even allowed to say this, but just like mistress culture, the culture of like buying things for whoever you're romantically involved with, or even if it's not a mistress, even if it's just dating, there's Mm -hmm. a huge culture around the guy having to constantly buy things for the girl, gifts, like taking her shopping, giving her an allowance, like Mm -hmm. paying for everything. That's a, a big thing there. And I think maybe it's rooted in the gender disparity, and like the mismatch in the number of men and women who are single, but that just doesn't exist. And if you look on the live streaming apps in China, that's a huge element of the dynamic of what drives monetization is like women live streaming and men watching and buying her digital goods. And that doesn't happen in the US.
1: Yeah, I I didn't bring up gender dynamics, but that certainly is another cultural context that really affects adoption rates um, and total addressable market size for, for some phenomenon in China versus the US. To generalize it at a higher level, I would just say that I often talk about culture or user psychology as one of these additional factors that we have to build in. But these are all phenomenon, right? Like the economic context, the incumbent competition, all of these things are just add up to a level of complexity that's not easily compressed into some bite-sized analysis. That's just like, that worked in China, so it's going to work in the US or vice versa. Some of it does, like some of it does apply, but I'm always of the belief that, so there's this book, The Beginning of Infinity by David Deutsch, which was like really influential on me when I first read it. But he talks about like we're all, we always need to seek out better explanations for things. And if you have a good explanatory theory, that's the beginning of infinity from the title of his book, because it allows you to, I think he uses example, like we can understand what's happening on the surface of a star across the universe, even though we'll never travel to see it because we actually have a theory that explains like what's happening. And for a lot of tech analysis. Like, I think the difference between interesting tech analysis and not interesting tech analysis often comes down to that. Can you actually come up with a theory that explains at a sort of like physical level why something is happening? And, and I'm not saying that my theories are necessarily those, but that's what sort of drives me to write more and think more about phenomenon. It's take a problem that you don't understand and try to break it down and and come up with a theory that explains it better than previous theories. And then someone will take your theory, say it's wrong and build off of it and improve on it. And that's how we move our, move ourselves forward in our understanding of what's happening.
0: Yeah. Nathan, I interrupted you. What were you going to say?
2: Oh, no, I don't. That was a beautiful sentiment. I feel like it's a good thing to end on. And I had a very prosaic question back when we were talking about shopping, which was like, Mm -hmm. what do you think of Instagram shop? Because Instagram is huge and payments are going to be, I think, a thing in there and Facebook more generally their ecosystem. It seems like probably the most promising avenue Mm -hmm. for that type of behavior to happen in the US. I'm curious if you have any sort of predictions or things you would look for to get an early sign. Yeah, yeah. I I haven't played
1: a lot with it yet, but certainly it's like a very logical thing for them to do. Like I've often described Instagram as like, it's always been the social network of all advertisements, like even personal posts are advertisements on Instagram. So it's perfectly suited towards this use case. And certainly anyone who's tried to buy anything on Instagram in the past and having to go through the in-app browser it's just like a really rough, janky experience. So I, I think actually... One of the big losses for Google, Facebook, the tech giants in general, this past decade was just not accumulating more credit cards. Uh, Americans are so into their credit cards and the improvement in user experience of just getting someone's credit card and their shipping address in terms of what it can do for you throughout the rest of your platform is massive. So I think Instagram shop is actually probably one of the best chances for Facebook to get tens of millions of credit cards on file, and to build that into their, to increase the utility of their overall experience on Facebook. It's the same thing with like live streaming commerce in China, where the fact that you don't have to create an account with a password, then type in your address, then input a credit card number, like it makes one-click shopping easy in China. And I just, anyone who's done any sort of shopping cart process knows that the moment you ask a person to create an account, and do all that stuff, like a huge percentage of users will just drop out. And now look, Apple Pay has made that easier in some respects now. And so it's getting to be competitive. Apple and Amazon always had that advantage that they already had so many credit cards and addresses.
2: Totally. I think we're I think we're at time, unfortunately. Yeah, we're running on time. I think we're we could do this over. for about two more hours if we're,
0: we're gonna have to. to have another Eugene day where we just walk out the whole afternoon. and... <laughs> Have Eugene back on the show. <laughs> um, Next time, I'm going to have
2: to read Complexity by uh, Wall Drop. Yeah, we the have a lot of, that of beforehand, reading. So we can go deep on it.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I'll I'll try to send you all some um, additional reading on there. Origins Wealth is is a good like place to start. Anything out of the Santa Fe Institute. Gosh, like the guy's name is slipping my mind right now. I'll send it to you afterwards.
0: Yeah, um, and, and we have a Discord channel. Uh, Yeah, we have a Discord channel. We just put the link in the chat. Join us there. Maybe Eugene can join us too. If there's additional questions, head over there. But yeah, thank you so much for taking the time, Eugene, for being on the show today. This was honestly so excellent. And like any great conversation, left us with a lot more open questions and thoughts than we had to begin with. So I really enjoyed it. And I appreciate your being here today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Um, And thanks everyone who listened in. I always appreciate getting any audience at all. All right.
0: Yeah. Bye. Bye.